Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode number seven of The Narrative. I'm your host, Jeff Gallett. I'm so happy that you found the podcast. If this is the first time you've listened, I encourage you to subscribe. I find storytelling interesting, and I find the storytellers themselves fascinating. The idea behind this podcast is to meet people who are great storytellers and to get to know them. Stephanie Stuckey is the CEO of Stuckey's, the roadside oasis famous for its pecan log rolls. Stuckey's was founded by Stephanie's grandfather as a pecan stand in Eastman, Georgia in 1937 and grew into over 350 stores by the 70s. However, the brand took a downturn after her father retired from the business more than 10 years ago. Stephanie took over the company in November 2019, and under her leadership, they've purchased a new pecan shelling and candy manufacturing facility, revamped their distribution operations, acquired a healthy pecan snack company, undergone a complete rebranding, added a few new retail franchise stores, and increased their online sales by 550%. Stephanie received both her undergraduate and a law degree from the University of Georgia. She has worked as a trial lawyer. She was elected to seven terms as a Georgia state representative. She ran an environmental nonprofit law firm that settled the largest Clean Water Act case in Georgia history and served as Director of Sustainability and Resilience for the City of Atlanta. She also taught as an adjunct professor at the University of Georgia's Law School. Stephanie's achievements include being named one of the 100 most influential Georgians by Georgia Trend Magazine, and she's a graduate of Leadership Atlanta. She's active in her community, is a longstanding member of Glenn Memorial United Methodist Church, and she serves on many nonprofit boards, including the National Sierra Club Foundation, Earthshare of Georgia, and her local zoning review board. Stephanie's story is fascinating, and she's joining me today. I stumbled across your story in an article a couple of months ago now in the Atlanta Journal Constitution about what you're doing, yeah. what you're doing to uh, to rebuild the brand. And it's there's a it's strange because I was drawn to the story, and as my podcast focuses on storytellers and people with interesting stories to tell, but also their backgrounds as storytellers and what got them to where they are, it just struck me as a really interesting thing. And um, I grew up in California. I've lived in Georgia, so I, I do live in Georgia, but I've lived in Georgia since 2004. But I grew up in California, and I don't think I ever encountered a Stuckey's store. I... um. And what's it? What and I've gone through the recesses of my mind. Like, why did I stop and read this article when I saw it? Because I saw the name Stuckey's. What was there? And I think some of it is in my in my history. My grandfather was very much into model railroads, model trains, and I became into them as a child, as a, and a young adult. And so much of that was Americana. And there would be people who would build these model railroad layouts, and they would put signs and things up. And I think I kept seeing signs for. Stuckies across and other things, and it just stuck in my mind from that. And I was like, "Well, that's interesting. I want to read. I want to read this." So, tell me about Stuckies. Tell me the Stuckies story. Okay. Well, first, I have got to respond to some of what you just said, which is just so wonderful. The model railroad aficionados love Stuckies too, because they're interested in American landscapes. And that's not just railroad tracks. It's the towns that they go through, right? That's what makes model railroads so interesting, I think. And one of my very best friends, her father was a huge model railroader. 
his entire basement Mm -hmm. was this giant model railroad village. And so I grew up around visiting their home and seeing that. And what was really interesting for visitors was all these little towns. And it makes perfect sense that people who like these model railroads, like your dad, like my friend's dad, also get the Stuckey's Mm -hmm. vibe. Duckies is about exploring the back roads of America. And that could be by car, that can be by railroad, but it's a way where you're on the ground and you're looking and it's very visual and hopefully it's tactile as well. You're getting out and you're walking around. And there is a Stucky store and billboards that model railroaders have built that you will see in some model railroads and they're on our Facebook page. And so I love that connection. I've got one of the model railroad Stucky stores that sits on my desk. Awesome. Awesome. Great. So you just want to imagine like when you see these little model railroad towns, what it would be like to wander around. Yeah. And it just makes you want to explore. It is. And it's so it's Americana. Right. And I think it's looking at this bygone era. And I don't think very many people today are building model railroads that look like the modern city of 2021. But they're building the city that was more the rural town in the 30s and 40s and 50s and sort of the nostalgia of that. And it's just interesting. Like I went back and like, why do I know the name besides just knowing the name? Like, what was it? Yeah. And that's the most I could actually come back to. I, and I'll tell you another story later on. But I think we, that's why yeah. your dad probably had a Stuckey's exactly. model railroad store. Exactly. And it was authenticity too. And I think that word gets so used and mm-hmm. abused these days, especially with marketing. Everyone's talking about how they want to be authentic. Yeah. But model railroaders are hyper obsessed the ones i know with getting every little minute detail Details. exactly the way it used to look yeah. yeah they'll take photographs they'll visit the actual sites and so that attention to what's honest and real that resonates with me that resonates with the stuckey's brand we're trying to get to that realness of what roadside travel really should be. It should be about making connections with places and with people, not just about driving through as quickly as you can. So your grandfather started Stuckey's. Can you tell, just tell my listeners, because they, like me, may not be as aware of the background and the story. Can you just kind of walk through the story a little bit from how your grandfather started and then we can touch later on how the heck you got involved many, many, many years later after that? Sure. Happy to. It was during the Great Depression. 1937 is when we that's when we officially say we were founded. But it was actually about five years before then when my grandfather had to drop out of law school. He was at the University of Georgia because they didn't have money to continue his education. And he had to go work on the family farm in middle Georgia. And it happened to be a bumper pecan crop year. Georgia is the number one state for pecan production. The pecan is America's only native nut, by the way. Interesting. And so pecans are plentiful. And we happen to be from the pecan capital of the entire world, this rich, fertile area of middle and then also southwest Georgia is where you find this wonderful crop, the pecan. And so it was a bumper crop year. My grandfather hated farming. He was farming cotton, actually. And was miserable doing it. He wanted to be a lawyer. He wanted something better. And he decided he needed to get out of that. And he had a side hustle. And I love that Stucky started as a side hustle. I think a lot of great businesses started as side hustles. 
and he went around to farmers, other farmers in the countryside and bought up their excess pecans because it was a surplus crop year. And he bought up the pecans and then he went to a pecan sheller and he marked up the price. So that's how he got started, really. We were a, a small pecan business. And then he realized he could make even more side money if he sold the pecans at a little shed on the side of the road. And then he was sitting in that shed, I'm sure, just waiting for cars to drive by. It was on US-1 that was going south to Florida. So you've got mm -hmm. all these tourists, these, he called them Yankees, mm -hmm. coming from the north, going through Georgia on their way to Florida to vacation. And he realized he could get more people stopping if he sold local souvenirs and candies. And he interrupted my grandmother's bridge game one day because he had this inspiration. He ran to the house and said, Ethel, that's, that was her name, Ethel, I mean, we should make candy. And she didn't know how to make candy. But she and her bridge partners went in the kitchen and started experimenting with old Southern recipes. And they came up with pralines and divinity. Later, they came up with the pecan log roll. And so the candy started selling. And that's really what made Stuckey's is we're known for our candy. The cool thing about this story is that little bridge club continued to make the candies until he built his first candy plant, which wasn't until the 1940s. This little small Georgia town bridge club. And one of the ladies was the only Jewish family in town. So this Jewish lady was making these great Southern specialties. Sylvia Rubin, I knew her very well. She died not that long ago. I was a full grown adult when Sylvia died. So it's just, it's such a cool history. So from there, fast forward, I'm gonna condense yeah. 75 years after that. Yeah. He grew from those humble beginnings to owning a candy plant, owning a billboard company, owning 368 retail stores all over the nation's roadways. We predated the interstate. We were the very first roadside retail where you would pull over for gas. You would get something cold to drink, something hot to eat, delicious snacks and candies that we made ourselves at the candy plant that he eventually built. Mm -hmm. We had clean restrooms, and we were always a welcoming place. I think that's really been the signature. My grandfather had the saying, every traveler's a friend, and he welcomed everyone in the doors of Stuckey's. And I love that part of our history includes that even during a very segregated period of time, in the South especially, we were never segregated. So Stuckey's was always open. And if you see the movie, The Green Book, there's a scene of them going to Stuckey's because we allowed African-Americans during that Jim Crow era. That's awesome. That's awesome. So uh, what happened to Stuckey's, though, is my grandfather sold the company in 1964 before I was born. And it was out of family hands for decades, a series of corporate takeovers. My father got the business back in the 1980s. He was able to sort of write that sinking ship. And he retired over a decade ago. And the store started floundering again. And I got this crazy opportunity to buy the company. And that was a year and a half ago. And we've, we've really turned things around. We went from losing money five years in a row to we're on a comeback. We're making money. That's great. That's great. So I have to tell you, because I, again, as I said earlier, I didn't have that much background with the stores. I actually went online a couple of weeks ago and I ordered, oh, I ordered a bunch of log rolls and I have yet to ever eat one. I have never tried one, so I'm wow. actually going to open up one. 
and I'm going to take a bite of it while we're talking. So that it'll be great podcast for audio for people to hear me chewing on a on a pecan log roll. Um, but what? Well, it shouldn't be too crunchy. I will say part of the comeback vision is well, the strategy, not just the vision, is that we are making our candy again. Like I said, my grandfather built a candy plant. When he sold the company in 1964, he sold everything. So we have been outsourcing our candy for 50 plus years. And in late January of this year, my I got a business partner. I brought a partner on board. He and I bought a plant, a candy plant, and a pecan shelling plant so as of, it took several months to get the production up, up to scale. We're making our own candy again. We started rolling out the new pecan log rolls about two weeks ago. So right. I invite you, I will, and I will send you samples too. We're coming out with the candy that we're going to be making in-house. And that, that was it's, really good. It's a little better, but that, what you're eating is good. I'm super excited that we're going to be making, we are making it ourselves now. So the story I wanted to pivot back to, so I went online, I wanted to, I wanted to get them in advance. I wasn't planning to eat them on the podcast, but I wanted to get one in advance and try it out before we talked. And so yeah. unfortunately there's no stores close to me. So I ordered them, which is fine. It worked great. Um, yeah. But I ordered six and then they got here and I, I had no idea how, what size they were. Right. So I, I ordered six and they got here and I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to eat six of those. That's like, I'm going to wait gain 3000 pounds if I eat six of those. So my wife was about to go up to Ohio to visit her parents. So I took two of them and I gave them to her and said, give one of these to your mom and give one of these to your dad. Yeah. So she did. And this was two weeks ago. So I've just got to tell you this because I think it's a really cool story. I think it's the kind of thing you'll like. So I get a text message from my father-in-law last week, the day after he got the pecan roll that I sent up to yeah. him. And he goes, yesterday I stopped at the new Shell gas station at Interstate 71 and Ohio Route 61 near our cottage because the gas was cheap. Then today I got the pecan log roll you sent me and I realized that the gas station used to be a Stuckey's. The building is still there, but the sign was removed in 2019. In fact, a body shop across Highway 61 took the sign and converted it to the word Stingray instead of Stuckey's, but I can still detect the raised plastic original around it. And as I dig deeper, it brings back so many memories coming from my family's 1950s road trips from Ohio to California with my mom driving us out to see her family, and then my dad would fly out and drive us back to Ohio. And I distinctly remember only three things from all those miles on the road. Burma shave signs, signs that said it's XXX miles to wall drug and Stucky's roadside stores. Wow. So it's pretty cool. Oh my gosh, it totally made circle. my day. Um, it's just interesting oh how it all gosh, goes full thank circle. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, of course. Um, but that says why I did this crazy thing of buying this company is that's what was happening to Stucky's. We were and and are the change doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. There are hundreds of ghost stores. That's what I call them. And I just got a call from a friend today who's driving cross country, and he said he's seen three ghost stuckies on this trip. You can see them because yeah. it's a very distinctive architecture, yeah. and it breaks my heart to hear those stories that they're gone. But I we can. We can you, take them back. You can get them back. Um, how we can get them back. And the best story, you're a storyteller, your listeners are storytellers. I think the best story is a comeback story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so much, there's such compelling 
there's so many compelling avenues to a comeback story. And that's what I wanted to pivot to. So, you know, you your background is not retail. It's not marketing. I want to, you mentioned the word authentic before. And so in the time since we connected and I've been following your posts and, and Stucky's posts on LinkedIn, and I think you post pretty much every day. It's really I post every day. So yeah. It's interesting to me because there's an awful lot of entrepreneurs and business owners and people who stick C-level titles on their on their names. And I'm a C-level executive, but you're very authentic in your posts. And I think that really, really, it strikes me that that part of the story there is the authenticity. Like you don't go into these things and pretend, at least from what I've read, that you're the world's foremost expert on retailing or roadside stores or candy making. You're, it sounds seems to me like you're learning as you go in a lot of these cases. And it's really cool to follow that because I get the sense of this is just, it's something so important to you. This company is so important to you that separate, I'm sure there's the whole business objective of wanting to make money with it and revitalize the brand, but it's so personal because it's your family. And as I read that, I see this authenticity coming out. And I think it's, it's interesting to me because you're not saying I am bringing my vast experience in X, Y, and Z to fixing this. It's sort of, you're going in and going, I just want to fix this and I'm going to figure out how to fix it as I go. Thank you for that. Yes. So I think the key to being authentic is being vulnerable. You, you can't have that honesty unless you are willing to tell the whole story. And it's fine if you just want to pull select pieces and that's what you want to present, but that's not being honest and real. So if what you're going for is being authentic, you have to put it all out there. And storytelling does give you the gift of weaving that truth in a way that presents the story you want it told, but you've still got to get out there and say, these are my vulnerabilities. And I actually did a post the other day that got tremendous engagement and I really judge more the comments and the dialogue that's fostered than mm -hmm. just someone hitting a like button. Although I welcome a like button. And I also like to see how many times it shows up in feeds. Those are all good metrics to look at. But for me, it's that conversation starter that I'm really pushing for. And I posted about my failure one day. I think too often in LinkedIn and social media, we just want to put out oh, I am cutting a ribbon at this new store or I got a promotion or we won this award, blah, blah, blah. All great stuff. I post it too. I love it when I get an award. I don't get enough. I'll post them when I do and I'm super excited to do that. But there's lots of days that kind of suck. And I've wanted Stuckies and Tractor Supply since I got the company a year and a half ago, just everyone's like tractor supply. So perfect for you. I go to, I shop at tractor supply, look at their displays. Oh my gosh, we'd be so perfect for tractor supply. I get a direct connection to their buyer from a friend of hers. So it's like a good connection. Mm -hmm. It's not some vague third party. And I mean, not only did I get the SmackDown, I got an immediate it wasn't even reviewing the material and it was clearly sent from an iPhone. It was like one sentence. Nope, not interested. It was, I mean, I didn't, it wasn't rude. It was, but it was just clearly not interested. Yeah, thanks, but no thanks. And it, 
fun. And I don't say this to slam on tractor supply because I still love that store and I'm still going to shop there and I'm not giving up. I'm not going to be this crazy persistent person, but at the same time, I would like to present and pitch to them again. Have maybe a conversation about why it might make sense. Yeah. yeah. But I think, but I posted about that because I said, we need to post these failures too, because you learn to be resilient. You learn to weather that. It, it, you can't let it cripple you because it, you would just not get anything done. Yeah. You just have to accept that is part of life. It's just your turn. Okay, you're going to get a number of rejections if you're getting up to bat. It, it's just the way it goes. And accepting those failures with grace and gratitude and just turning it around and thinking, well, this 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 just wasn't the timing wasn't right and there's wonderful lessons learned from any bad experience and I think I just need to have a different approach to tractor supply and maybe approach them at a better time for them. Yeah, I mean it could be completely on their side and it could just be that whoever the person at the other end was, you know, that doesn't know the brand or has a negative perception of the brand as an older brand, doesn't realize what you're doing, isn't close to it, and just was sort of categorically, cavalierly saying no. And they probably get asked by a hundred different brands a month to be in their stores. So, you know, that's, that's the classic sales story. It was interesting. I was, I saw one of your posts a couple of weeks ago, you were at a trade show and it was, it was interesting because I've, you know, I run marketing, I've run marketing in my career. And so trade shows are a big part of marketing. At least they were, they were. Um, And it it was interesting to see because, you know, we would go to an event and my CEOs would always look at me and go, well, how did the event go? And I'd look at them and go, well, why don't you ever come to them? Like, come stand in the, come stand in the booth once in a while when prospects and customers walk by and you'll get a sense of whether it went well or not, rather than having me disintermediate that conversation for you. And it was a really difficult thing to do. And I get it. They're busy. They had other things to do. They hired people like me to have a team to go do that. But I thought it was, uh, I thought it was really cool that you actually did do that, that you were there. And, you know, standing in that booth for the long hours it takes to stand in a booth on long your feet hours. all day. Um, you know. Thank you. Well, one of, part of it is out of necessity. There's, we're a small team. So I have to work the booth. The other is, frankly, no one is going to pitch the brand as effectively as the CEO or the president, my business partner, who's co-owner. Mm-hmm. He was in the booth as well. No one's going to pitch it better than us. We know this brand inside and out, and I know the Stuckey's brand better than anything. And when I bought the company, you're right, I didn't know what a SKU was. I've never heard of a reefer truck. I didn't know what cross-docking meant. All of these terms, what's a, what's a POS display? What's a planogram? What's a distributor versus a broker? I mean, the the questions go on and on. I was constantly, and I still am reading books, watching webinars, trying to learn all of this. But what I do know is I know this brand and someone asked me right after I bought the company, what makes you think you can run Stuckey's? You can't even run a lemonade stand. And I said, I can't run a lemonade stand, but I can run Stuckey's because I know the brand. And it gets to the whole point of your podcast is it's the story. Companies that do really well aren't just selling a product. They're selling a story. They're selling a narrative. 
they're selling something that makes people feel like they belong to something, that they're part of a community. So to get to your father-in-law, he remembers Stuckey's as part of what? The family road trip experience. 95% of the people who contact me, contact me about the road trip experience that they had and Stuckey's played a role. So for me, it's a no-brainer when people say, what are you trying to do with Stuckey's? I'm reviving the road trip. I'm celebrating the road trip. That's that's what I'm really doing. So and yes, I want to sell pecan log rolls as part of the process. <laughs> yeah. And I have to make profit because I've got to be profitable. But I'm not about building revenue as much as I am about building brand and building community. So how much... Um I would assume I'm going to get, I'm just going to make an assumption that you were around the stores as a child that you, or, you know, that you spent time in them and that they were a big part of your life. And just this, this, there's an emotional connection beyond it just being family to the fact that part of your life was, was tied to this, these things. Yes and no. I think I had a really unique experience in that my grandfather sold the company in 1964 mm, and I was right. born in 1965. So I didn't grow up with Stuckey's being in our family and our brand is based in Georgia, always has been, and we're strongest in Georgia. That's where we have the most recognition and customer base. I grew up in Washington, D.C. because my father got elected to Congress. So we live this dual lifestyle. I joke we were like country mouse, city mouse, where we spent the school year in DC when my dad was in Congress and then he was constantly running for reelection. So we were always back in, in Georgia, but Washington DC is a very cosmopolitan city. Mm -hmm. And I went to school with kids of diplomats and a lot of people in politics and the military and people from all over the world. And they didn't necessarily know Stuckey's. And so I didn't grow up in this, environment where Stuckey's was necessarily known, which is great. Mm -hmm. And also, I'm not deceiving myself. Of course, I have an incredible fondness for my brand and my family. But I also went to school with John Hines, who is part of the Hines family. Like right. that was his great, great grandfather. So that's a brand, right? Stuckey's is not Hershey's. We're not Eminem Mars. We're not Kellogg Corporation. So Yes, we're a brand that has a certain amount of recognition, but I, I love that it wasn't this sense of entitlement. Yeah. Uh, so there was that aspect of it. And the cool aspect is we took road trips like everyone else. We had a Woody station wagon. I'm number four of five kids in my family. And I was always the one in the back of the Woody station wagon with the air conditioning didn't work <laughs> as well. Remember where they had the seats yeah. that popped up? Both directions. Yeah, yeah. 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 And this is when that movie Convoy came out and we were listening to all the trucker songs and trying to get the truckers. You do, do the, the yep, sim yep. Yeah, you yep. do. You, you pump your arms up and down to get them to honk. And I was part of the CB radio era, like all those road trip classic memories that so many of us have in those 70s, especially. I lived that and we stopped at Stucky's like everyone else. And yes, I knew that was my grandfather's company, but we didn't own it anymore. Right. So it was, so I like that I had this experience as akin to what I think most people that era had. 
but I did know my grandfather. I was 12 when he died, and I have very strong memories of him and visiting the candy plant, which we no longer owned, but they still let him visit. Yeah. And he was on the board of the company that bought Stucky. So he was engaged until his death in 1977. So I'm very blessed to have those memories. And then you went to law school and you became a trial lawyer. Is that right? So, I mean, you didn't have, you, didn't, right. you didn't go down the whole business path. You went down to law and then, and then you followed your dad's footsteps and you went into politics. Well, and you know, the interesting thing is my grandfather Stuckey was in the Georgia legislature, just like I was. And I served in the legislature with about 20 men who served with my grandfather who were still in office. So that was really a neat experience. And I did. I replicated something my grandfather did is whenever he had a vote that a bill that was up for vote on the House floor, he would give out pecan log rolls. <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying this. In uh, Georgia actually has a little glitch in the law. Well, not a glitch. It's, they allow it. There's an exception where you can hand out free Georgia based food products to advocate for legislation. And I guess the Agribusiness Council or whatever lobby for that. So it was perfectly legit. I handed out pecan log rolls all the time on the House floor. And that was a little homage to my grandfather in his days when he was in the legislature. And I lost some bills, by the way. So I don't know if it's necessarily an effective technique to get your legislation passed, but it was a fun way to so way just to get, remember my grandfather. Yeah, it's a good honor way to honor him and to get remembered by yeah. the people that you're with there, especially the ones who knew him, I would assume. Um, did you yes. ever think about going further than that in politics in the Georgia State House? I know that you, you did that for a while, but did you did you ever think about following your dad into Congress or any of those kind of things? I think everyone in elected office always thinks, well, what if I went higher or any position? You always have the strategy What's challenging about politics is that things can change so quickly that aren't in your control. And you can be the most effective legislator or representative. And if you're not in a district that is uh, aligned with what you represent, it doesn't matter. You can't get elected. And we were constantly getting gerrymandered and the power control shifted when I was in the legislature from being the party that I was in to the other party. And so suddenly I was on the outs and constantly subject to redistricting. So that makes it very hard to want to get elected statewide. I had thought about statewide election, you know, maybe secretary of state was very interesting to me at one point or attorney general, because I'm an attorney, but I just decided I had plateaued after being in the minority party for about eight years. I was in the legislature 14 years. So six wow. of those years were in the majority and the remainder were in the minority party. It's a lot more fun to be in the party in control. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. I mean, politics is just one of those games where we talk the talk about minority interests matter, but no, it is all about control and power and if you are not the party in control, what you have to do, your tools are communication. I got very good at filing minority reports and holding press conferences and organizing rallies and 
protesting in a civil disobedient way, you know, that's what you do. You can't actually get legislation passed. Uh, very rarely. Sometimes you can work, you have to work behind the scenes. It's all maneuvering. It's a whole different, it's like your strategy pivots overnight when you lose power in the legislature. So it was great life lesson. I mean, it's a great lesson for business, right? Stuckey's one of the reasons uh, the brand plummeted and it was out of our control at this point, but the oil embargo, people weren't taking road trips anymore. And then the Airline Deregulation Act passed, which made domestic Flights air cheaper. travel very affordable. So families weren't taking road trips. They were all doing this wonderful new thing called airline flights. So that had nothing to do with our business plan. And if you don't completely shift your strategy, your company is going to plummet. So if you're in politics, if you lose control, you better change your strategy immediately or you're not going to be effective. And so it was a great lesson. And I continued to enjoy it when I was in the minority party. But it just at one point, I finally realized I've plateaued. Like, I know how to do all this stuff. I'm not gaining any additional yeah. skill set. And I should let somebody else come in who might have some fresh ideas. So on the pivot point. And Stacey oh. Abrams got part of my old district. Well, and so go. I feel like it was well represented when I left. That's a pretty good win. Um, yeah. On the taking those lessons into business. So you you bought back Stuckey's, if I have the math right or the dates right, like November of 2019. Is that right? November 1st. Yeah. And then three months later, we are in a global pandemic. Like yeah. how, how much of right? a pivot did that Can't have to take that. in terms like who could like you take on the business and you start building out a plan, I'm sure, for what you're going to do. And then suddenly yeah. the whole south and everywhere else in the country is locked down and people aren't traveling at all. And it just that had to be an interesting time to just as a time to bootstrap a business to start off bootstrapping it through that period that we went through in the last year and a half had to be really interesting. I had a whole strategy written out within 30 days. I, I'm a big proponent of having a written plan and then actually executing it. And global pandemic was not in my strategy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was pretty funny when that hit. Uh, I My previous role had been chief sustainability and chief resilience officer for the city of Atlanta. And mm -hmm. someone called me and said, well, you had this resilience plan for the city of Atlanta and you didn't predict global pandemic. And I said, well, I don't think anyone else really predicted it either. Yes. We've been saying for a while, the CDC has said, yes, this could happen. And, but what we did put in that plan and what every good plan has is the ability to quickly respond. And so any good business, you have to put in structures so that you can be nimble. Whether or not you have specifically outlined there's going to be a pandemic or there's going to be a building collapse or there's going to be civil unrest. I mean, there's any number of crises that can occur at any time. And more importantly than having a strategy that is going to anticipate every possible crisis that can occur, there's no way you're going to predict that. You can't. But you have to cultivate a culture that is willing to adapt quickly to change, and you have to put structures in place 
so that you are able to quickly adapt. So a good example is you should have redundancy in your supply chain mm -hmm. because any number of crises are going to affect your supply chain. Yeah, it's amazing. You need to make sure that you've got a strong workforce and that your workers are well compensated. You have to take care of your employees. You have to make sure that they are treated like people and not just pushing out hours for you. And they're going to stick with you in the hard times instead of bailing. And it's just creating that to me is more important than necessarily having in your written plan that a pandemic is yeah, going to occur. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I would think that, you know, with people, especially in a business like yours, where, you know, that the representative of your company is the person running that roadside store out in a distributed place. And they're, but, but they're not viewed as Joe or Bob or Julie, they're viewed as the Stuckey's person. And so they're representative That's back a on your business. challenge for us. So not to get into that too much, but the company that I purchased, we don't own or operate any stores. They're all independently owned and operated. And in fact, putting my lawyer hat on, I reviewed all the agreements. We really aren't even operating a franchise wow. system. We're operating a licensing. So licensing the name to the to those companies yes, or to those businesses. Because we don't have a franchise program. We don't have the typical upfront fees that you charge. We don't mm -hmm. assess a percentage of sales. We don't have a national marketing budget that the franchisees, and I'm putting air quotes because yeah. it's really licensees. So we've redone those contracts and we're slowly, as we have the contracts expire, we're renewing them as licensing deals. That's the reality of the company that I purchased. Mm -hmm. As we rebuild, my plan is to have corporate owned stores that will be completely brand forward that you will greet, be greeted by people who work for Stucky's Corp and are really part of our team. Right now, what we have are people who sell our product and it's varying degrees of quality for the stores. And I'm in the process of trying to make sure that the stores that really aren't fully representing the brand are debranded and focus on the ones that need some love, but have lots of potential or the ones that are doing well and just making sure they're getting the support they need. That's great. It's a challenge. Yeah, I can imagine. I think uh, I had any, I, I guess I didn't realize that. And I, I know you had mentioned originally that your grandfather owned, it sounded like he owned the stores before he then sold nope. the business off. He didn't even back then. He didn't. No, wow. he had such a, I think he had such a brilliant model and I'm surprised more people aren't replicating it because it really gave people a pride of ownership and he took care of his employees first and his customers second, which is the way I think it should be take care of your employees. They're going to be the brand ambassadors and they're going to take care of the customers because you can't be on the front lines meeting every customer. Right. But if your team feels like they're part of something bigger, they're going to represent the brand. And how he did that was giving ownership. So he had employee stock ownership plans before that was really even a thing. In the 1950s, many of his corporate employees were compensated with ownership in stores. And the stores were by and large owned by the franchisees. And they might own say 70%, but they would own like the majority mm -hmm. share of the store. And then he might have 30% that was owned by employees. And my grandfather made his profit from the sale of the product, including gas. So he had a deal with Texaco mm -hmm. and he got a percentage of every gallon sold. 
And then he made his own candy and he had a distribution facility and he sourced all the products and he owned a, tr a trucking company and he owned a billboard company. So he had all these businesses that generated profit for him, but it wasn't from the sale of the franchises. Franchises themselves, yeah. It, it was from the sale of the product. That's awesome. And the owners lived in the stores. The old stores actually have living quarters in the back of them. Interesting. So Interesting. they really had a sense of this is this is our home and they took pride in it. Wow. Um, that's awesome. Um, so a couple quick things before I let you go. Um, unless there's anything else you want to say. Um, I think I was going to ask you what the future was, but it sounds like you just touched on it with the, the growing and trying to get more stores and things. So complete pivot, though. Um, which I like to get from all the guests just to give people some some options and to, to learn about what other people are into and what they think about and the things they recommend. So do you have any recent shows or movies that you've binge watched, a movie you've seen, show you've binge watched, a documentary you love, or something that you've seen recently that you recommend to the listeners? I've been binge watching The Food That Built America on the History Channel. And I can't remember if it's Amazon Prime or Netflix that I found it on. I think it's Amazon Prime. But you can also get it on the History Channel. I just couldn't. I had trouble navigating that. <laughs> but I love that series. And it dram dramatizes and tells the story of these companies that made the products that we eat every day. Burger King, McDonald's, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, Frito-Lay, Hershey's. Heinz, Campbell's Soup, Kraft Cheese, Kellogg, Post Cereal. The, the list goes on and on. And what I love about the series is not just they do a dramatization and they, they tell the story. And then they have this modern day retrospective from experts in the food business and in business who talk and chefs who talk about the contributions that are still around today from these entrepreneurs, most of whom were like early 1900s, yeah. some in like 1940s, 1950s. And I also love the show because they, they really elevate to the status of business tycoon food businesses. And I think too often we don't think of Hershey's chocolate as a business tycoon. We tend to think, oh no, it's the Carnegie's and the yeah. Vanderbilt's and the, and the, uh, Rockefellers and the steel manufacturers and the railroad magnets. And we don't think of a chocolate bar or someone who rev revolutionizes pasteurized cheese and the, increasing the shelf life of cheese as being a billionaire tycoon that we should emulate. And so the show really celebrates that, that these products we take for granted every day, there's a real story behind them. There's real people behind them. And they're amazing. Bird's Eye is another one. I will, from now on, when I go buy frozen food, I'm looking for Bird's Eye just because that story of Clarence Bird's Eye and how he he created the method for freezing food and making it still taste good that became a commercial method. I mean, he took methods that Alaskans had been using for that's centuries. I'm going to have to go watch but it. But he it commercialized sounds, it. It sounds really interesting. I'm going to have to go watch it. I've got a 
Hopefully it's on one of the things I can download. I've got a couple of cross-country flights for the first time since the pandemic started in the next week. So I need some things to watch while I'm on the plane. Um, along Highly the, recommend it. On, on those fronts, are there any recent books that you've read or a podcast that you listen to that, you, that you'd recommend to the listeners? I am finishing up Richard Branson's second autobiography. And so I'm enjoying that. I now need to listen to the first Losing hmm. My Virginity, but it popped up on my, I listened to Audible. So that one's really good. And podcast, I'm a huge fan of how I built this. Okay. Great. And then last one, um, any current song or artist that you love that you have on repeat when you're driving around, driving to your, to your locations dispersed all across the Southeast? Or anywhere else. I am old school. I like Journey and the Eagles, Almond Brothers. I've been listening to Otis Redding a lot. Actually, he he's from Macon, Georgia, and I was just getting a cup of coffee at this cafe in downtown Macon, and while I was waiting for them to brew the latte, I walked outside, and there's the Otis Redding foundation right next door and i walked in and he's from macon and sitting on the dock of the bay was written about macon and or written while he was living in macon and i bought a book about him and i thought oh my gosh this is so fat and i knew he's from georgia but i didn't know that much about him so yeah. i started binge listening to otis wedding interesting i uh amazing I artist i associate him i never i didn't know that he was from georgia and i associate him in my silly little mind with the Bay area, which is where I grew up because I had this image of him talk singing about San Francisco because of the Bay. And I know that he did a really famous performance of it at the Monterey jazz festival in Monterey. I never connected yeah. him to Georgia until just now. So that's interesting. So he's from Macon, Georgia. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That was probably written about being on, uh, on the Bay out West, but I think he wrote it in Macon, but, but he's, that's his hometown. That's and awesome. so I'm really, really enjoying listening to Georgia grown artists. Of course, I love R.E.M. That's my era. The mm -hmm. B-52s, Almond Brothers, some of those classic. Well, you went you went to UGA. Georgia, so. con Southern Country. Yeah. You went to UGA. Sugar so Band. R.E.M. and B-52s were probably the big thing in Athens. Not that long or right around that time or not that they, far. Yes, behind, when yeah. I was there. Yeah. Vic Chestnut, Widespread, Widespread Panic, a lot of these bands that you would know if you lived in Athens in that era, 5-8. So I'm, I just love Tractor. I'm a fan of all that music. Great. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Narrative. Your feedback is always welcomed, as are your shares and, of course, your reviews. Please subscribe and review The Narrative on your podcast platform of choice, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. <laughs>